ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, present Moxie Bets. Make bets with Moxie with betting expert Kate Mox and her merry band of gambling insiders as they preview lines, spreads, parlays, and props with personality and the kind of advice they would give themselves. That's Moxie Bets. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Lucia Agnello, and my dilemma is I'm worried my son won't have clean water in 50 years. So I don't know a ton about drinking water issues in America, but I do know that the clean water crisis goes well beyond Flint, Michigan. A recent report has 2.2 million Americans living without clean drinking water, and I just saw a pretty compelling and smart look at it. Uh, Just one aspect of it, really, in the American West from last week tonight. It was the episode from June 26, John Oliver, looking at water issues in the West. Um, I have no solutions. I find myself, once again, hoping that some of our best minds are on this problem Uh, along with many other problems, and that they're listened to. Because I think one of the great plagues of our country right now is a turn towards anti-intellectualism, a distrust of or rejection of experts, and valuing the opinions of the everyman as the same, or or more accurately, the loudest platformed everyman over those uh, that are doing the work and using science and research and facts uh, to back up their policy suggestions or their advocacy. So, yeah, I fear for your son and and for everyone else's kids, my nieces and nephew, uh, for reasons beyond water. That is one of them. Uh, But, for instance, another mass shooting. This time it was in Highland Park, Illinois, which is the town right next to my hometown where I grew up. It's a place where my friends live now, where my friends had to grab their kids in the middle of a Fourth of July parade and, and run home. A place where my friend's friend was shot in the chest. He's hopefully going to make it through a place where parades and fireworks and all the celebrations of our alleged freedoms were canceled for thousands of people uh, near Highland Park because of the freedom that we elected to afford one very sick 22-year-old man to buy a high-powered rifle and to be able to tear apart the bodies of his victims with a gun that nobody needs or should have. And his right to that deadly weapon was protected and has been fought for, while women's rights to their own bodies have been stripped while black people see another one of their own in Jalen Walker shot dozens of times by police after a traffic stop. Uh, And as we know, and as we could say over and over and over again, justice and liberty for all, not the way of this country, never has been. Uh, So I didn't really celebrate the 4th of July yesterday with any real patriotism. Instead, I sort of mourned our country's deeply fragmented nature Uh, This terrifying push of fascism, our backsliding rights, our movement towards a Christian theocracy. And I was thinking about it and was reminded of the famous Langston Hughes poem, Let America Be America Again, and this super powerful line. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet, and yet must be, the land where every man is free. Now, I'd amend that to every person is free, because we've seen what happens when man appears in historical writings instead of person or human being. Women end up not being considered one. Uh, So yeah, I didn't really celebrate the fourth, but not because I don't love America or at least the idea of America, the land that never has been yet, but that was dreamed up and promised and celebrated despite never living up to that promise. I love that idea. I wish we were closer to it. Uh, There's this this poet and cultural critic, Hanif Abdurraqib, and I've quoted this line a number of times. He wrote about how a true love of place is fighting for its betterment. And the quote is, it's an active love. I'm not watching with my face against the glass adoringly. I'm in a cage with it, fighting with it. It doesn't live up to its potential to serve everyone who lives here equitably. For me to want to transform that, you need love. So for your son, Lucia, for all of our children and their children and their children, let's hope we get our shit together and fast. That's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. 
one of the top 14 sports podcasts around, according to uh, Esquire magazine. I uh, forgot to mention that before, but a belated thanks to Esquire and to writer Brady Langman for the honor. If you agree with it, you can feel free to head over to iTunes or Apple Pods. You could subscribe and follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. You could leave a review, a nice one, hopefully. Five stars, please, hopefully. That'll help others find and enjoy the pod. But thanks to Esquire for that. Uh, after a month of really what I thought was fantastic Title IX-related content, very sportsy content, uh, we're going outside the sports world a bunch this month, and we're starting with today's incredible guest, Lucia Agnello. She's director, writer, and producer. She's best known for co-creating, writing, producing, directing, all the things for Hacks, for which she won multiple Emmy Awards. Also, her work on Broad City. Other work includes the 2017 film Rough Night, Babysitter's Club, and Aquafina is Nora from Queens. Uh, we talk about her life as a young tennis star going off to Columbia, meeting and making a life with her creative partner and husband, Paul W. Downs, a pivotal arrest, how she cut her teeth on Broad City, the thrilling success of Hacks and how it's changed her life, getting to work with Jean Smart, upcoming projects, also how she's managed to squeeze in a wedding, an Emmy's win, and a new baby while making season two of Hacks, which is out now on HBO Max. I think you're going to love this one. Here's Lucia and Yellow. That's what she said. So a big thank you goes out to Honest Games' Joyce Anderson, who you all heard on this podcast a few weeks ago talking Title IX and compliance for sports. But she made the introduction to this week's guest after, um, I believe we started talking about Cornell versus Columbia. And (laughs) uh, so our guest is here. Uh, Maybe we'll talk a little Columbia tennis, uh, but more importantly for her creative endeavors. Uh, Let's go back to growing up. were you more of a jock or a creative or both? I think kind of both. Um, I played tennis with, with Joyce at Columbia, and I was a even pretty serious junior tennis player. But um, I also, whenever I was home, like, you know, would be taking like drum lessons and be going to concerts and, you know, trying to get my friends to write plays with me and nobody wanted to. So, you know, I think <laughs> I was kind of always a little bit of both, both to be honest. What did you like in terms of content were you watching mm. old saturday night live or sitcoms on uh, tgif or what were, what were you watching yeah <laughs> yeah i actually was watching snl a lot because my mom really liked it and this was like the molly shannon sherry o'terry yeah. era um you know the sweaty balls era and uh <laughs> my mom really liked it and she would come my parents owned a restaurant um uh, restaurants in amherst massachusetts um and my mom would work on the weekends, but she would come home around 11 or 1130. And so I would still be up because I was you know, probably with my babysitting my younger siblings. Um, and so we would watch it. And so I, I and she would laugh so hard. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't know, there was something about that time where I was like this. I think it was kind of formative. But um, I was watching a lot of MTV. I was watching a lot of like real world road rules was my jam. Mm-hmm. I was watching a lot of VH1 behind the music. Um, yeah, I was I was really into like, honestly, just like the idea of what is kind of youth culture in a time where I was even younger, but I was like really hungry for it. Um, and I was excited to just be like, I used to um, watch like a lot of music videos and record them on VHSs. Um, yeah, so I was really into that kind of stuff too. But I was I was really just into like, what is the cool stuff? And I grew up in Western Mass, like right in between Amherst and Northampton in a town called Hadley. Um, so I... I had access to kind of cool stores and venues and things that were nearby, but it really was the kind of thing where you had to still kind of seek it out, even though it was nearby. Right. Um, because like, even you're, you know, in eighth grade, you're not necessarily like, it wasn't, it, it was nearby. So yeah, I found myself like wanting to like go to, to Northampton and walk around and go to, you know, CD shops and go to Newberry comics in Amherst and just like try to like soak it all in because I was just right. like, what's, it was just all really exciting, interesting to me. It's funny when you get older and you think kids are quote unquote too young for stuff. And then you remember that you were reading, you know, 17 magazine or whatever, when you were actually like 11 and you were going to college towns and wanting to be cool and understand even didn't mean you were doing illegal things or being led down a bad path. There's just an aspiration to be older at that age. That's, there's a curiosity that I think leads you to a lot of that stuff. I, you mentioned that your your parents had a restaurant. I believe uh, you were were you born in Italy but grew up yeah. in yeah. So I is it is safe to say it was Italian? Yes, <laughs> I was born in Anzio, which is 
um, outside of Rome. Um, and my mom is like Italian American first generation. My dad um, came to America when he was 17. They met and married in Boston and then kind of went back to Italy to kind of honeymoon slash maybe live there. And then I was born then. And then my mom was kind of like, I, this isn't it for me. I'm coming back. And my dad kind of was like, yeah, let's, let's bring her back. So I ended up growing up in, in Western Mass because um, my parents kind of felt like there's a lot of college kids there. There yeah. was like a need for, you know, some more Italian food and pizza and restaurants and stuff. So they felt that that was a great place to raise us. And actually it was, it was a really amazing spot. And um, my, I got into tennis there um, because my parents love tennis, but this really awesome guy, Art Carrington, who's a tennis coach um, out in Western Masters, had a club there for uh, that worked out of Hampshire College for decades. Um, he, he was my coach and he was, you know, really kind of a magnet for so many kids in the Western Mass area um, who would play tennis. And, you know, there's so many kids who've come through that pipeline that Art Carrington and his son, Lex Carrington, um, that, you know, it's 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 a thing. And, um, you know, being a part of that that community, uh, you know, like brought me out of my shell in terms of like it wasn't just the same kids that I grew up with my whole life because the town of Hadley is actually quite small. Right. And you grew up with the same 50 kids your whole life. But this was an opportunity for me for me to meet kids of different backgrounds. Um, and even Art would like bring me to, you know, the Y in Springfield and have me take boxing classes with, you know, girls that, mm -hmm. you know, are very different than me. And so, you know, being a part of that really, it changed my life in a lot of ways, not just the tennis, but also the community that it brought me. Yeah, that's really cool. Actually, my sister was a, a big tennis player growing up, and she did you oh, really? know, tennis Europe and stuff. She ended up playing at Lehigh, but um, mm -hmm. she got to travel a lot. And, and same thing, sort of, I, I think we, we often um, maybe don't recognize as much because we're so used to being athletes, how much it teaches us about adversity and leadership and teamwork and working with people we don't like and everything else. So lots of lots of lessons to be gained there. You go on to play at Columbia and... Um, you were a film and media studies major. Was that an instant thing? You got there and you were like, this is why I'm going here and this is what I want to do? Or did you gradually happen upon the focus? No, I, I very much knew that I wanted to be in, in really actually I thought TV more than film, to be honest, when I first you know started out. Um, and so when I was visiting college and deciding where I was going, I was definitely like looking specifically at those programs. The major at Columbia Film Studies is really more of like a classical film history program and, you know, criticism as well as a big part of it, at least for me. Um, they have a grad program, which I, I didn't do, but, um, you know, it was, it wasn't exactly, I think, perfect for, or at least at the time, I didn't think it was ideal, the most ideal program for me, but in retrospect, it was an amazing thing because I had to watch so many different films and just be exposed to so many things that I otherwise wouldn't have been if I was just kind of more of a like media studies major. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was an, a great program for me. But when I came out, it, I didn't think that I was going to be a director, even when I was done with the program. Um, it was really only, you know, when I started going to UCB, because I literally just Googled Amy Poehler, because I was just like, I want to be Amy Poehler. Um, <laughs> and so all. I was like, literally just yeah, exactly still still do. Um, but, uh, you know, once I found the UCB theater, which was still, you know, it had been going on for a couple of years and I had been like vaguely familiar with their Comedy Central show. Um, but I literally just took a class. I had been exposed to improv at Columbia because um, actually, you know, like Jenny Slade and Mac and um, Gabe Liebman and all these really great people were doing improv and were like, you know, part of this like thing that was a thing. And um, even Kate McKinnon was was a part of it. But but I still didn't like see it and think I'm going to do that. I don't know why it didn't really like strike me until kind of after college um, that I wanted to do it. But I also had dropped out of high school after my sophomore year and took, got my GED. And so as a- Wait, wait, let's go back to that. <laughs> what was going on then? I was basically kind of like plateauing in my tennis where I was just like, I'm not getting to train enough. All these like girls who are playing at these like, you know, academies in Florida are beating my ass. Like I need more time to train. And also I, I was not really like loving my high school. No offense, Hopkins Academy, Hadley Mass. It was just not really like my <laughs> thing. It was, I don't know. There was like a guidance counselor there at the time who I was like talking to him about like this kind of schools I would want to go to. And he was just like, you have no chance. Don't even bother applying. 
you should be going to these schools instead. Like, cons- like just take yourself down a peg. And I was just kind right. of like, no, I don't want to. And I was just like, this isn't like, it wasn't at the time. I don't really know what the school's like now. The teachers were great, but I just, or some of them, <laughs> but I just wasn't finding myself being like inspired to be what I felt like I could be. And so I was kind of just like, all right, I'm out of here. My parents mm. were super supportive. They were like, cause in my dad, you know, they're like very like entrepreneurial. You got to do it yourself. Like, yeah. so because of that, and they were like, we know you work hard. We know that you're dedicated. We know no one can tell you no. So go and do it. And so I dropped out, got my um, GED and I enrolled in Holyoke Community College, which is the area community college, went there for two years. And then at I 16? transferred at 16. Yeah. Wow. And then I transferred to Columbia. Um, so I came into Columbia with a bunch of credits already. And so I was actually only there for three years. Um, and were you, um, you know, 18 or 19 when you got to Columbia? So starting yes. around the same age as the rest of your peers? Exactly. Starting at the same age, but being done a year early. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that year early was a kind of a really big deal for me because I'm somebody who very much was like, I got to get it together. What am I doing? What is happening? But I was like, listen, this is a year of my life that ordinarily I would be in college and I'm also, you know, saving a bunch of money by not going, being in college right now. So I was like, I'm going to give myself like a year to just kind of figure it out. And that's when I took a UCB class. Um, and it's also where I met my now husband and collaborator, Paul. We met at level one. And yeah, it was like, it was a, it was a time where I didn't put a lot of pressure onto myself. And of course, that's exactly when things started to Success come together comes. for me. Right. So tell me about work. So you, I mean... Being at UCB, you have to pay for the class. And also, I presume you were living in New York City? Yes. Yes. So like, how do you cheap. pay for that? <laughs> I yeah. wait the tables. Yeah, yeah. I I'm always fascinated by people's, yeah, early jobs. Yeah, usually that's it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I waitressed. Um, my, I waitressed at a couple different restaurants, but the one that was like my main there for a bunch of years was Koi in the Bryant Park Hotel, which was, okay. is, uh, you know, a Japanese restaurant that... Yeah, it was fancy. And I had, because my parents had had restaurants, I was able to kind of like, be like, I know what I'm doing enough to get this job. And I, you know, I wasn't the best waiter, but I also was kind of good. Pretty <laughs> because good. I was yeah. like, you know, like I wasn't necessarily somebody who could like talk to you endlessly about the sake. I just like know what they would tell me. But, and I say this a lot, but like waiting tables is to me the best education you can have actually for, for directing or show running or something, because you know, you get really used to dealing with front of house, back of house, talking to all different kinds of people. You kind of have to adapt your personality and the way you communicate based on the people and you have to do it immediately. And you also yeah. get so like overwhelmed in the weeds. We're running behind. This table needs that. You're, tw- you're an hour behind on the day, like all the same things. And you just have to learn how to like block out the anxiety and just figure out what's the next thing I have to do and just work through it efficiently and pragmatically. And yeah, I think there's like so many lessons in waitressing and in, in directing, to be honest, or wait, waitering. My, uh, <laughs> I guess restaurant... men might learn lessons too. <laughs> right. Sometimes uh, we, we wish more often. Um, I uh, My first job when I moved to L.A. to try to do comedy was in a restaurant, and it remains the most stressful job I've ever had, despite... Uh, being on television and I just did an event with the first lady and interviewing, you know, Michael Jordan. Like it does, it doesn't matter. Yeah. The most, the most stressful job I ever had was working in a restaurant in, in Century City. Um, oh, okay. Man, so let's talk about like, uh, Gulfstream in the Century City Mall. Gulfstream. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I helped open that joint, which uh, is a Houston uh, corporation. Uh, and uh, those restaurants are very corporate. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you Sounds can get like written it. up for smiling name, without your mouth yeah. open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, good times. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Okay, let's get back to Upright Citizens Brigade because I love this mm. meet cute. It's very good. You mm-hmm. and Paul, who plays uh, the agent for Gene uh, Smart and Ava in Hacks, your superstar mm-hmm. comedy. Um, you guys meet there, and I want to know when you recognize that it wasn't an admiration of talent so much as mm-hmm. like, oh, I this, this feeling is different, and I want to work together and more. Yeah, you know, it. I don't know if there was like a single moment, really. Like, I, you know, like when we first met, I, I day one, I was like, this kid is hilarious. I was like, there, I've never experienced thinking somebody's this funny in person before. Of all the stand up shows or whatever shows I've ever seen, I was like, this guy is so funny and magnetic. And I did think he was cute, but he had really, really long hair and like boot cut jeans and like <laughs> cowboy boots. Like oh the look was, oh quite, we were not exactly <laughs> sure what was going on here. We were like, what, Who, what's the, hmm. Oh, what's this guy and about? This was, let's but, say um, 2000, 2007-ish, two, 2005. Oh yeah, very awkward yeah. time for us all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Zathan's diesel jean trend was, was throwing everyone <laughs> off. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I we we were friends for sure at first. And I definitely knew the thing I knew for sure was that I just wanted to be like around him. I was like, I think he's so funny. I want to take the same classes he's taking. Let's go. Hey, let's meet up and go to dinner, you know, before class or, or whatever it was. Like, I was just like, this is a, a new friend of mine who I really like being around. And, you know, we started spending more and more time together. Um, and you know, it was like, then it like slowly kind of turned romantic in a way, but like not, not like straight up to like, oh yeah, this is like, I don't know how to describe it, but it was very, very slow evolution into a relationship. I wouldn't say that we were really into an actual relationship relationship for about almost two years. And actually it was from the time that he got arrested if you want to hear that story. I was unaware of this. <laughs> yes, I would love to hear that story. <laughs> so he and I were um, leaving a party in Midtown. And at the time, for some reason, he like had his like ca- car from college. He went to Duke. He had his car from college like ar- in Brooklyn or in New York at the time. And I don't know why. But he's like, all right, I'm going to drive us back to Williamsburg, where we both lived at the time. Um, and like within a block, he got pulled over. And I had had a, uh, I I was super high, but he, I think he had just eaten a pot cookie, but was not high yet. He was like sober. So he's like, let me drive us before anything happens. So he gets pulled over. Turns out from like years prior, he had gotten a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt in New York or something and didn't know that he hadn't paid the ticket because it got sent to North Carolina. Oh no. And he like didn't live there anymore. And so... In any case, there's something called or is or was called Scott's Law, where if you owe the city or state money, you can be arrested, essentially. Um, So they arrested him. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, so like, you're extremely basically that night. I'm like, over really well for you. I'm extremely (laughs) I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh, my God. They're like, can you drive this car? I'm like. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely not. I drive it like one block and like just pull over. Um, But eventually I like go to the police station and I'm like, hello, sirs. May I get out my friend? And they're like, no. And I was like, okay. Except for one guy was like, yeah, give me a ride back to, you know, Yonkers and I'll see what I can do. And I was like, oh God, this is bad. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So um, in any case, I whenever he like calls every, you know, cause he would get an, a, an opportunity to call every couple hours, you know, I was just like so worried about him and it just like put everything into perspective for me and, and for him. So like after that, it was more like, this is my person. I really, really yeah. care about him. And um, like that is what we consider our anniversary trauma together. Um, that's, <laughs> yeah. what, that's why they make them like skydive and shit. Cause once they go through those traumatic experiences, <laughs> they feel bonded. Um, <laughs> I believe this is the same thing that happened when my friend's older boyfriend at Cornell came back to visit right before the start of our senior year. We decided to streak the campus to welcome the freshmen to school. And so he drove us like eight Mm. of us in the back of an SUV. And before we could even get out to take off the limited towels and such that we'd worn the car to get there, uh, he got pulled over from previous on-campus tickets mm. and arrested and oh, we all, yeah. some of us who were high not me 
also were extremely paranoid and dove out the back of the SUV and just started running across campus oh in a towel trying to figure out where our next meetup would be. It was very well planned. Uh, and that is a good law for people to know about <laughs> in New York, as it turns out. Yes. Um, okay, so now you're oh together God. and you're... Um, yeah. It's very cool to like just start creating your own digital shorts and doing improv together, starting your own website, deciding that you want to have this mm -hmm. creative life together. What was the first project you did where you were like, I think we I think we're good at this. I think other people think we're good at this. too. Well, I guess we made this one short at Paul's parents house also involves another getting pulled over story. But we'll see if I get to that. But um. It was maybe the like fourth or fifth video we made because at the, this is like now is when I start being like, I guess I should be directing is is because, you know, I was having trouble getting stage time at UCB. I was putting up shows that weren't getting runs. Um, justice, uh, justice for my sketch shows that never got a run. But, um, you know, Paul was having more success, but I was just kind of like. I want to be doing more. I want to be making things. And so I, because I had taken like literally one production class or I made a couple, one short at Columbia. I was like, I can do it. I can figure it out. <laughs> I like, you know, went on YouTube to learn how to edit on like final cut. And I just literally taught myself how to do coverage and figure out what all these things mean, just truly by Googling. Um, and so I started making some shorts and the first one that we made that I think was like something was um, I don't even know what it's called Thanksgiving dinner or the the last Thanksgiving I think is what it was called last Thanksgiving where basically Paul played every family member at a Thanksgiving dinner table um, so we basically just like locked off the camera once we yes. were on one side and he would go to the other side and go and like try to you know do all the lines but it was scripted but it was also kind of improvised which makes no sense if you're trying to be everybody at the table it feels like it would need to be heavily scripted but <laughs> right um that one took a long time to to shoot <laughs> it took a long time to edit um and if you go back I'm, i don't know it's probably online somewhere i haven't seen it in at least a decade but it's like you know really messy in so many ways but it did get paul immediately got him like meetings with managers oh, i think great. he may have gotten an i think it, he he did screen test for snl and i think it was based on that short maybe probably um yeah and so when he he got called out to la was like meet with a bunch of managers and you know he said to all of them like i would love to you know sign with you but you have to sign my partner too wow. because this is like yeah because it, it this is who i'm making stuff with and you know she's not in front of the camera but but we come as a team. And so that's how I got representation um, was from Paul kind of forcing people to sign me. Yeah. Well, yeah. it seems to have worked out. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what's your favorite word? Juxtapose. Juxtapose. To place two or more objects side by side or close together. Etymologists think that juxtapose is a back formation. So that's a word that comes about through removing the prefix or suffix of a longer word. They think it was created when people trimmed down the noun juxtaposition. And historical evidence supports that juxtaposition shows up in the 17th century and the verb juxtapose in the 19th. Juxtaposition was a combination of Latin juxta, meaning near, and French position. So learned about that too, back formation. Uh, juxtapose. Good word. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is Herkle Durkling. Staying in bed long after you should have got up. It's from 18th century Southern Scotland. And we've talked about reduplicative words before. Hoity-toity, okie-dokie, etc. Most of the time, the first word holds the meaning and the second is likely sort of a made-up term to rhyme with it. So Herkle means to draw up the limbs and crouch or squat to draw the limbs together close to the body. So you could sort of imagine someone languishing in bed, sort of in the fetal position, putting off work or productivity. One of the earliest examples is for Dr. Jameson's Scottish Dictionary and Supplement, Volume 3 of 1841. And here, uh, here comes my terrible Scottish accent attempting to read this. Lang after peeping Greek day in Herkel Durkel Habilay, gaite your work, your dern and Merkel, and lie nay there in Herkel Durkel. Nailed it. All right, in a sentence. After a month of extensive travel and extra work in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Title IX, Sarah didn't blame herself for Herkel Durkeling most mornings 
of the July 4th holiday weekend. Now let's get back to the interview. When you were at Upright Citizens Brigade, um, you met Alana Glazer and um, Mm -hmm. Alana and Abby Jacobson uh, started doing Broad City. um, And Mm -hmm. Paul, your partner, was cast Mm -hmm. as the boss of Abby's character on the show, the trainer at the gym. And the pilot gets picked up by Comedy Mm -hmm. Central and you guys both become writers for the show. That, I presume, was your first real, like, we're on a project that's funded and supported. Um, what was that like for you? Yeah, that was definitely our first TV job. I mean, it was incredibly stressful <laughs> to direct the pilot of that because I had never directed for television at all. I'm being handed a pilot to direct of my good friends who I love and care about so much. And I know how much they have poured their heart and soul and every penny they've ever earned into this project. And so I know how much it means to them. And, you know, I don't, I've never worked for Comedy Central. I don't know anything about anything really. Um, And so I'm like stressed the hell out because it like means so much to them even more though. So then for myself, you know, obviously like I want to do a good job to get my career going, but it was really because I was like, this means so much to them. It it needs to be good. Um, So we shot the pilot um, and it did eventually get picked up, which is amazing, but we did some, there was some retooling of the pilot and some reshooting of stuff. So Paul actually wasn't in the original pilot. Originally, Abby was working at a coffee shop. Okay. Um, and then for whatever reason, it got changed to being working at a gym. I think it just kind of felt like coffee shop workplace had been done before. and People weren't really tapped into the like, the kind of like, soul cycle uh, right. equinoxy new agey new york gym yeah. culture um and uh so yeah so that got so actually paul was cast once the season got picked up and then they did ask us both to join as as writers so, so it was cool. it was amazing it was incredible it was show. yeah it's it's an incredible show it was so visionary it was so different uh some of the like musical sequences and mm. the creativity um I literally to this day will often, in part because of my sports background, whenever Blake Griffin comes up, I'll be like, have you guys seen the Blake Griffin (laughs) sex episode of Broad City? And I'll be like, all right, we're watching it right now. It's so good. Um, What was your biggest takeaway (laughs) as far as, you know, being a professional and moving forward from working on that show? I would say that, you know, like making things with your friends is so incredible. It's like, I get to wake up and make things with some of my favorite people on earth and get to hang out with them for work. Like that's crazy. And it's been so amazing. But the downside of it is like, because there's so much like stress of like making a show and, you know, getting it done and making it the thing you want to be. And everyone has an idea of what it wants to be and all these things It can get really complicated. Like you have to make sure to keep your relationship as friends, like, the most important thing mm-hmm. you have to have like so much communication with yeah. like, Hey, this is bothering me. Hey, this is something that I felt bad about, or I'm sorry I did this or whatever it is. Like if you're able to keep your friendship as like the thing you're protecting the most, then it actually makes a better project um, because you're not then dealing with hurt feelings or resentment or ego, um, which can happen with any creative collaboration, whether your friends or not, right. of course. Right. But, but I think that that's the thing that like, is really is is the thing I came away with is just like it's really important to to keep yeah your personal relationships like solid and and then it bleeds into the the work because you're able to have more of a sense of play more more of a sense of happiness and and that is really what fuels comedy to me anyways is is being able to kind of feel free to joke around and do silly ideas and pitches because then you actually strike something that you're like, oh, this is the thing we want to say or do. And, and I don't think you can get there if you're kind of sitting there upset about something else. Agreed. I also think and I don't I, I, I this is my limited experience, but in the spaces in which I work at ESPN that are predominantly women, I find mm-hmm. we get to that best idea wins. No feelings are hurt faster than the spaces that are predominantly male. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that was the case on that show at all, but um, there's a bit less of that like ego at play, I think, um, mm-hmm. that lets you get past that initial. I'm hurt that you didn't like my idea or that this didn't work. And you just keep keep going until you get to the thing that does work. Um, so your your 
working on that show and you start doing some other producing, including time traveling bong, which mm-hmm. I love that you had actually done academic work about time travel related <laughs> content uh, before. Mm-hmm. And that leads you to creating time traveling bong and then rough night, um, which the cast of this movie. And I have to admit, I have not seen this and it is going to be a job of mine this weekend to, to watch. Um, but based solely on the, the description, it sounds like something I should have seen already. Things go terribly wrong for a group of girlfriends who hire a male stripper for a bachelorette party in Miami. I'm in already. Mm-hmm. And then the cast is unbelievable. Scarlett Johansson, Kate McKinnon, Zoe Kravitz, Alana Glazer, Jillian Bell, who absolutely slays me in everything she does. So Ty so Burrell, good. Demi Moore, yeah. Paul, your husband. So many good people. Eric Andre, Hassan Min like so many good people um tell me about this movie um and tell me why you don't think it did as well as it could have or should have based on the cast and the ideas and everything else yeah I mean it was a it was a spec script that Paul and I wrote while we were writing Broad City I want to say maybe between seasons two and three we wrote it or something like that and then we ended up writing it I think after season four of Broad City or something like that but um yeah, I mean, we wrote it on spec, which means that we wrote it without anybody asking us to. <laughs> um, and then went out and sold it and got to make it, which was so exciting. Um, I love the movie. I'm really, really, really proud of it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of like the financial box office or whatever, it's it's a weird, you know, it, it, it definitely like made the money. It's not like it, you know, bombed in a way that like really I don't think affected my career or anything. There, right, I, didn't, right. I don't feel like I'm in movie jail, but you know, I do, I don't know. I think that there was like a moment, you know, it came out in spring of 2017, you know, very, very early in the Trump administration. And I think that, I mean, I'm not blaming it on this in any case. I'm just trying we to give it context. We can blame whatever we want on things that we decide <laughs> are to blame for many things. So. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there was just, we were living in a moment where things were really like, I, I was really like bummed and stressed. And mm. I, I think that the movie, it is a dark movie. You know, there is like death in it and blood and a lot of, you know, it talks, it talks about police brutality. It's like, you know, it's not necessarily something you, you would put on to be like, I want to feel happy today. You know, it's not a joyous. It's really dark. Yeah, it is. Um, And I think especially by saying like, okay, we're going to do a summer comedy with all these really funny people, but it's pretty dark and stressful. Um, I think there was something there that was like a little bit like, well, what, what is it? Is it, is it fun? It's like, well, it's funny in a way it's dark funny. And it's like, I don't know. I think that there was something a little bit like hard for people to, to want to necessarily sign up for something like that was a little bit yeah dark at the time. And maybe I'm wrong and maybe, and there's been trusting a lot of people who I've really connected with it. And I'm like, so, so happy with about that too. And when people are like, Oh, I loved it. Then I'm like, Oh, this is, these are my people. So right. well, um, and it there doesn't is... always mean something. It's not a referendum on how good something is, how it does. Some of my favorite yeah. things don't move past a, a, an original season or two. And then there's other shows that are on forever that I'm like, who is watching this? This is sure. terrible. How is this yeah. so popular? Um, and actually that brings me to something else you worked on. The other two, you're a consulting producer on that show. Mm-hmm which was freaking hilarious. So funny. And actually, it, I, if I remember correctly, was super highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes and everywhere else. It was from um, a couple Saturday Night Live head writers. Yeah. So funny. Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider created yeah. it. Yeah, And basically, uh, it's about a pair of siblings whose younger brother becomes like Bieber-esque and becomes famous and how they deal with who they are and, and who are we compared to our, our brother and all the weird crazy things that happened but um tell me about working on that and 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 it feels like um it got renewed for a second season for 2021 but maybe is not uh moving forward oh i think it it is oh good yes yes yes. okay so maybe just covid slowed things down (laughs) yeah so season two came out um this past fall um and i think that's correct and uh the or late summer into fall and they are, I believe, making season three right now for HBO Max. Awesome. That's the other thing. It was on Comedy Central and it's yeah. now moved over to HBO Max. Okay. But yeah, I mean, like I, like Chris, like you said, Chris and Sarah, who created the show, are super, super funny. They were former head writers of SNL um, and it has a fantastic cast. And yeah, it's like, you know, I think it's it's a show that like if you're looking to get some like serious, serious laughs, of, like some yes. of the funniest one-liners ever <laughs> and a really, really accurate searing portray, uh, you know, satire of what is 
going on in like kind of the pop culture industry. I mean, it's the show for you. It, it's definitely one that like, I think you can turn it, tune into any episode and just like laugh your ass off. And it also has so a lot of heart as well. Um, but yeah, Paul and I, we actually only worked on it for about six weeks, um, very early in season one. Um, and then wrote an episode and, and haven't really been super involved in it beyond that. But it was just, again, a case of just like, you know, our friends were like, let's talk and ha- talk about the show and like figure it out. And I mean, they obviously it was their show and they had it very much figured out, but um, they're really the driving force of that. We were just kind of there to be like, hey, what you're thinking is really good, you know? Yeah. So how do you, when you're brought in for something like that, if you have very mm-hmm. strong opinions and you have things, you know, that you believe, how do you know based, is it, does it feel like that's clear based on the role of either executive producer or head writer or consulting? How much you can actually really dive in and give give thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, it's actually something that Paul and I are doing far more now because um, we have a, a deal with Warner Media as producers. And so we're actually producing a bunch of stuff with that studio right now. And it's really interesting, like the idea of, you know, people come in with, ideas and they're like you'll they'll pitch them to you and you kind of decide like hey does this kind of align with the kind of storytelling that we think is you know funny or important or whatever it is for whatever whatever reason makes it interesting to us um and then we decide you know whether or not we want to kind of come on board as producers and then we will work with the creatives to kind of shape it in whatever way but um i think it depends it really depends on the project like sometimes people come in with like here's my scripts here's my here's my idea here's my full scripts here's my deck here's everything and it's like great this is good we have some thoughts here or there um take them or leave them but we try to be very take it or leave it in general um but also some people will come in with just like a small idea for something here's the, a little bit of the idea let's talk it out and craft it together. And that's also something that we, I think really enjoy doing as people are also just like students of television, honestly, of just like, we lo- watch a lot of stuff. We love talking about what makes things work and not work. And also yeah. the alchemy of it. And also how you have no idea if it's going to work or not work. And so much of it is luck. Um, and you know, whether you have, a, you can have a great script, but if the cast just doesn't work in the moment, it just doesn't work. And you know, a lot of it's in any case, um, yeah, that's something that we're doing a lot of, of right now. That's and cool. it's, it's a really exciting time and for us, uh, actually, yeah. in terms of, of being able to hop on board with other people's projects and, and add what we can add and, and step away when, when they have it, you know. And then, you know, after that is really when you start taking full ownership of the projects in the last couple of years as executive mm-hmm. producer and uh, mm-hmm. showrunner and everything else. Quickly, let's hit on because I really want to get to hacks. But um, Babysitter's Club, you're a, a year or two younger than me, but that is like my childhood. Read mm-hmm. every single one, poured through all of them. And you actually had to go looking for the rights and you yeah. were you you made this thing happen from the start. Yes. Yeah, I was very much like, you know, my agent was like, do you want to do this reboot or that reboot? And I was like, and I don't have connections to any of these things. And she's like, well, what do you have a connection to? And I was like, honey, babysitter's club. She's like, okay. (laughs) Um, So she tracked down, you know, who had the rights to it It was Walden media and Mike DeLuca. Um, And I kind of just went in there and like poured my guts out about the show and what I wanted it to be. And then they were like, great, let's find a showrunner. Cause I wasn't available to to do that at the time. Um, And this, fantastic awesome writer Rachel Schukert who comes from Glow and Supergirl and a ton of a huge huge list of um, credits um, was also a super fan and had a, also an amazing vision for it um, and so she and I you know really got to go and make this version of of the TV version of the Babysitter's Club for Netflix that I am so proud of. We got to People make loved it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, it... and with Netflix you never really know if it's going to keep going even if everybody loves it because of the just the nature of that service algorithm yeah how they operate yeah and unfortunately we were canceled after two seasons which is heartbreaking because there are so many girls that are honestly boys too like you know i think that we're used to seeing especially girls in media being like child children little 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 kids and then the next piece of media they have for them is like teenagers who are like dating and having sex or whatever. Like, I think that 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 age that, you know, between 10 and 16, it feels like there just isn't a ton out there really, you know, in a way that is about the show's really about like community and the show is about like taking care of your friends and your family. And, you know, like the fact that there isn't really great 
childcare in this country, which was written in the 80s and is still true today. And so we have to like pitch in. We have to have like children pitch in as uh, yes, childcare in this them. country. Child labor. Yeah. Yeah. Which is crazy. <laughs> but, you know, if I, in any case, I, I really think that it's a it was a really special show and I'm really, really proud of it. And I'm, I'm happy at least it's up on the service for for girls and boys to, to grow into watching. Concurrently, you were sort of doing the Aquafina is Nora from Queen series. Would, were you show running on that and that's why you weren't available or were you um, producing only on that one? Yeah, on that one, I mostly just came in as like a director producer. Um, so I directed the pilot in the first couple episodes or I did the first like kind of block of episodes. But um, yeah, that one was just like, I love Nora. She's super funny. That's Aquafina's real name. Yeah. Um, and she's, you know, and like, I, I actually kind of signed on to that like, before she really, really blew up um, because I knew that she was about to be in um, Crazy Rich Asians and I had loved the series and I knew that who she was playing in it. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to blow her up so <laughs> huge because she's so funny and it was perfect. Yeah. And and so I was like, whatever that project is at Comedy Central, I want to be a part of it. So Carrie Dornetto um, was a showrunner uh, based on a pilot written by Nora and Teresa Shaw And um yeah, so I was really, really excited to to be a part of that, but I wasn't uh, show running on that, no. So let's get to hacks, because um, I just could have spent this whole episode on it, and here we are, and we only have a few minutes left. But um, I, you, you created this with Paul and Jen Statsky, and yeah. I listened in an interview, and Paul talked about how... Um, inexplicably sort of you were uh in an area that had a monster truck rally going on and somehow that <laughs> coincided with a conversation about female comedians uh, from the past who didn't get their due the same way as their male counterparts and that landed you on the character mm -hmm. uh that is played so perfectly by gene smart but um how does the rest of that show sort of start to come together yeah, I mean, it, then then we kind of needed, I think we wanted like a proxy for almost our POV as like younger comedians who followed in the footsteps of these women. And so that was um, kind of how we came up with the idea of Ava, somebody younger than us, that was kind of like, oh, who is that old hack? Who's that right. that woman? Oh, yeah, she's QVC. She's whatever. She's, she's not somebody I take seriously. I'm cool comedy. I know what's going on, you know, and and the hubris that comes along with somebody who has done quite well at a very young age, but hasn't necessarily mm. learned a lot of lessons she needs to learn. Um, so, so then it kind of became this two-hander idea um, of, of this relationship. And then from there, you know, this was, I think it was almost eight years ago now that we actually had that road trip and came up with this idea. And Jen was writing on um, Parks and Rec and then later The Good Place. And Paul and I were, were busy with a bunch of other stuff. And so you know, it was the kind of thing where we're talking about it all the time. We're adding ideas to it. We actually went off and wrote a feature film that has yet to be produced in the meantime, Jen and Paul and I. And that was really, you know, when we started working together very seriously. Um, before that, it was just, you know, a little bit in Broad City. But um, that's when we started being like, OK, we really, really like working together. We have this idea for this show. It's been percolating for years. Once we were all available, then we pitched it um, and we're really, really lucky to have uh, find a great home at, at HBO Max um, when we pitch it to uh, Susanna Macos. So it was, and then from there, uh, we got the green light to make the pilot. Then COVID happens. So we had attached Gene Smart, but that was it. And Paul as the manager. Um, and so then HBO said, listen, we're going to be shutting down for a while. Why don't you go ahead and write season one? And then when we're allowed to start shooting, you can just go ahead and, and shoot it. So we got, a little lucky in that way that we got to just go and write the season. Um, but on the other hand, then we hadn't cast it. So then once we cast it, we did go back and tweak some some of the characters a little yeah. bit to make sense that's, for the actors. That's what I was going to wonder. Did you have Jean Smart in mind from the beginning when you were writing this character? Or did you create it around her once you cast her and start to make some changes based on her? You know, the truth is, is we that's one character we actually didn't make a ton of changes for based on the casting. We didn't originally have her in mind because as she likes to say, she would have been far too young for it when we first <laughs> thought of the show. Um, but, uh, but no, she was one that, you know, we had, we, we wrote that character to be all these things, big, brassy, sexy, funny, sarcastic, mean, all those things. And, you know, we were really swinging hard for that character. Um, and I think, in the hands of a lesser actor, we would have had to adapt it to to say, oh, well, you know, 
she's really funny at this, but less good at this drama right. stuff. Or she, you know, has some some weaknesses. But with Jean, we didn't have to ever do that. We got to write the character as we wanted to write it, and she was able to do everything we needed. So, yeah. so we didn't actually have to adapt that character at all, which was amazing. Um, she's fantastic. I mean, I really I was watching is. her in Designing Women when I mm. was when I was little, and now obviously she's done so much stuff since then, some really incredible roles. But then she's at seventy, sort of peaking again with Watchmen and Mayor of Easttown and Hacks and all these Emmy Award nominations and wins. So it's such a cool thing that you are wanting to honor comedians and women who didn't get their due while simultaneously giving this incredible role to a woman later in her career. Um, and it, it's so fun to watch, but I, I want to hear about Hannah Einbinder because that's not someone that you had cast. And um, I wonder how much the role of Ava was formed around getting to know her. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's um, interesting. She, she's such a unique um, actor and like her cadence, the way she talks is so specific and unique that like, even though we had made a couple changes based on her, but but she makes it so her own just in the way that she's so naturally herself. So I think almost in some ways, the ways that she's adapted the character are a little bit um, like the, the nuance is just literally in the way that she breathes and talks and the way she says words. But but she um, she's somebody who actually fit the description of the character incredibly well. We wanted somebody like a, a bisexual woman who's, performance of gender was a little bit, you know, like not especially feminine. Um, we want, we actually wrote a character, you know, we had this runner about somebody with big hands mm -hmm. and then we cast her and she's like, Oh, you, yeah, you know, I have big hands. And we were like, she's like, you must've written that in once, you know, you cast me and we're like, no, that was already in. <laughs> and in the finale of season one, there's a photograph of her hands on like this large blue, I don't know, sculpture um, from when she was a kid, when she was like 12 and her hands look enormous. And I think Deborah says posi positively extraterrestrial. And those <laughs> are her actual hands. There was no Photoshop. That was wow. actually her hands. So things like that just like happened to fall into place. Yeah. But like, but for example, Hannah added, role, right? This, I mean, yeah, she'd never acted insane. before. Psycho. Did, and she just decided she wanted to act and this happened to be her first big get or how did yes. she end up coming in for the role? Well, she, so she's a stand-up and she's like very much a stand-up. Like she works all kinds of different comedy rooms, alt rooms, more traditional rooms. Like she's, she had done Colbert um, yeah, right before. Yeah. Yeah. Right around when we were casting her. So she had, that was basically her only credit. And the only way to see her, if you Googled her, was just this one set on Colbert. But um, yeah, she like, you know, her reps were like, hey, you want to audition for stuff? And she's like, cause she, they had signed her as a stand-up. And she's like, yeah, sure, um, I'll, I'll audition for things. But she's, I think she said she like, I don't know if she ever even got a single callback before the show. Wow. Um, and, you know, the first time that we saw her was back when we were still making a pilot, which ended up not happening. But um, that was the first time we saw her. And I remember us saying like, now that's an inch. She's very interesting because she was, she matched the character so well. You believe her as a, as a writer I mean right. god love them but there's so many actresses that came in that were so beautiful that I'm like <laughs> I don't know if I can buy you a comedy writer not to say you yes. can't have both there's plenty of us of who course. can no I'm just kidding but um but uh you know there's something about Hannah where you could believe like you know she would be kind of one of these hot hot comedy yeah. writers in in LA Absolutely. And there's just something very believable about her. I think she partly has because she's confidence plus deeply seated insecurity to perfectly fit mm -hmm. that kind of uh, that kind exactly. of ingenue who's you know figuring it out. It's so good. Um, I, I wonder how different it feels that this show takes off. All of these awards acclaim, people love it. Uh, how different that feels. How magical this run has felt. I mean, you squeezed a wedding to Paul in. Mm -hmm. It it was delayed over a year, and then you end up mm -hmm. having it. Um, in Italy just a couple days before the Emmys and then you win a bunch of Emmys and um, I mean that just the, it feels like it must be it's an incredibly new time for you all of this yeah and all, on top of that when that same week that week of you know coming back and winning the Emmys I was also 14 weeks pregnant uh -huh. um, and which was not planned um, and I just <laughs> had a I had a, a kid in March on top of it all while we were finishing second season thank you um, I finished, yeah, we, he came a week early. So 
I missed the last week of production because he was supposed to come the last day of production. Um, but, uh, and I, you know, still finished all the post and I took, I think the Friday that I gave birth off and then Monday and then Tuesday I was oh back gosh. in the edit, but That's I know it's not, it's not a good, it's not a brag. No. That's a uh, yeah. desperate cry for help. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, so much has happened in such a short amount of time and it is surreal and incredible. And like this moment that I know can never happen again, um, and so I'm really trying to, I'm really doing my very best to, be, to enjoy it and live in the moment. And it's really difficult sometimes because then like the stress of like, oh my God, now we have to make the next season. Is that yeah. going to be as good now that we oh, made this one? Like, so good. Season two is so good. And the ending is, is a perfection of, of figuring you. out what comes next. So good. I wanted thank to ask you. quickly about the episode on the cruise ship because sure. um, I love how the show balances comedy and drama and tackling bigger issues without feeling, you know, preachy or or losing itself. But mm -hmm. the conversation that Ava and Deborah have on the boat about sexuality, um, as someone who's a major ally for LGBTQ+, there was a part of me that got worried about changing the idea of you're not born gay because of mm -hmm. the restrictions and potential legal uh, fights already being faced and that seem to be coming down the pike for um, LGBTQ plus people. Was there any concern that that conversation, instead of being illuminating and freeing for people, might stir up that conversation in a way that isn't s serving that productive? That yeah. Of course, that was a, a concern. And I think our intention wasn't you know, to, to dismiss the idea that people are born a certain way. I think our intention was to say, yes, you can be born a certain way, but what you really need to do is to make sure to ask yourself, what is it that I actually want? What do I actually right. desire? And, and to not, and to actually, you know, figure it out. I think, um, like Deborah was saying, she's like, I was just, I'm straight. So I was straight and never really, really considered it. And I think that that's part of, um, you know, what we, want to say in general which is like you know of course people are born a certain way but but do they even ask themselves what that really is and i think you know whether it is just the orientation or your performance of gender whether you know i think that that's like such a big issue to me in general with just a binary is that you know by saying like oh men should be dress or behave this way and girls should dress or behave that way and by eliminating the spectrum, I mean, I think that that's what people seem to be, uh, seems a lot of people are so afraid of, of yes. that, of out, mm -hmm. living outside the binary, which is why people are so, I guess, have so much hate towards transness or, or even against like, you know, drag queens reading books to children is mm -hmm. to say, oh, if you expose them to the idea that you don't have to live in this binary and that you can live anywhere you want and however you want. That's so, that that's so liberating. What that does is then force people to ask themselves, well, well, what am I actually? And that's, I think, seeds a lot of fear into them because it's so much, they want to just live in this world where men are men and women are women and anything else is, is scary to them, which is sad because the truth is, is the truth will set you free. And so yeah. it's just to me, you know, whether or not it's, it's on this show and having that conversation or, or, you know, in Babysitter's Club, you know, having uh, one of the babysitters care for a trans child or or even on on, on Broad City, having Abby, like, you know, think that she's straight for most of the show. But then her realizing actually maybe she does want to date women. You know, I think it's like it's so important for us to say, like, don't close yourself off to to exploring what that is and then figuring out what does that what you actually desire to be, whether it's orientation wise or gender wise or whatever, because living authentically is the, is how we, the only way to live in the brief time we're on this little marble, you know? And the idea that it would be limiting or scary instead of completely freeing yeah. is what's so sad about it. Um, I have a friend who just realized at 41 that she wanted to date women. And I do think you're, you're born with the capacity to be along a spectrum and so much of what society tells you and how you view yourself within the confines of the expectations for you, uh, makes it so that one day you can wake up and be like, whoa, wait a minute, there's mm -hmm. this whole other thing. I never even considered that mm -hmm. these feelings might be because of this or otherwise. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it was it was a really powerful moment in the show and so fascinating. And that's why there was the part of me that was like, oh, I'm nervous about this, but I also love it. And I think it's so interesting and, and thoughtful. Um, 
We're running out of time here, and I could talk about hacks forever. And I just—it's so fantastic. I hope everyone's watching it. But I want to quickly ask, what's next for you? Uh, I, I see an untitled Kevin Hart project, <laughs> and hot robot with someone who also has the last name in yellow. Yeah, is that a sister. It is. It's my little sister. Okay, she's good. um, she's a comedy writer. She actually wrote um on the other two, season two, okay. um, and she's written on on a bunch of of things, but um. Yeah, she she kind of started working at the production company that produced Broad City right out of college and kind of started as more of an exec, but then became a writer about four, three or four years ago and is absolutely killing it. Um, and she has this show, Hot Robot, that we've set up at HBO Max that um, is, I yeah, I can say a little bit about it, I think. But um, the idea is that it's based, loosely based on a real experience she had, which is that she is the idea is that it's a um, robot, a hot woman robot that is um, created to, uh, the idea is like it's created to be a like kind of fun party robot. And so she's hired to interact with it to make it more sentient and more like a cool girl. But then when the nefarious plans of the um, Blackwater style company that created it come to light, oh. she decides to help the robot um, escape from the bonds and they, uh, they, that sounds fascinating. Yes. Is it a comedy or a it's a comedy. It is a comedy. Okay. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, and what's the Kevin Hart project? Oh, I really hope that it gets made, but I don't know if it will. But um okay. it's essentially like um taken, but with a real dad. So instead of having um special skills, he has dad <laughs> skills. His daughter <laughs> His daughter gets kidnapped. I have a particularly limiting set of skills. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so his daughter is kidnapped, and he and his ex-wife have to uh, bury the hatchet to try to get her back in Europe. Okay. All right. I like that. Um, well, congrats on all your success. It, Thank uh, you. Keep creating this amazing stuff. It's been so. Oh, fun, I appreciate uh, it. To engage with. Before I let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition speed round. Number one, your current career is canceled. What job do you do instead? I hate to say it, but community, well, politics slash community organizing. Okay. I hey, think, don't hate to say it. I, think I, I, I was going to say, that. I was going to say, I hate to say politician, but then I switched it to community organizing. There you because go. Maybe that's where I got to go. But, but I think that I might do that either way, even if my job is canceled or not. Yeah. We might be required to, in order to save the planet from yeah. ourselves. Uh, mm -hmm. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, one time in a flight from uh, Provincetown to Boston, um, we almost crashed and I was really afraid. Oh. Oh. I wrote my vows on that flight though. <laughs> there you go. Uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? I guess it would be really cool to speak every language for a day. Ooh, that would be really cool. Right. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, sports, would you most like to be your best friend? Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, everyone does say Oprah, so I'm not going to say Oprah. Um, <laughs> I would, I would like to, I'd like to, I, I would like to uh, be best friends with Michelle Obama for a day or for however long. I would like to, to endeavor forever, endeavor. as long as she'll Did have. Did we already me. make Amy Poehler our best friend? We, I wouldn't say best friend, but we've made her a friend. Yeah, jelly, <laughs> jellyfish. Um, number five. What's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not meaningless. It's, uh, my biggest pet peeve is when uh, I ask somebody on set how long something will be, and then it's twice as long to do. <laughs> That's allowed. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? One time I was uh, j just gotten my license, and I was at my tennis club, and um, there was a bunch of people waiting outside because it was done for the day, and all the kids were getting picked up. And I like pulled up to kind of like... Uh, show off that I had a drive a license and but I hit the like parking brake before I hit the brake I hit like went went into park before I hit no. the brake or something and the car like <laughs> like oh, no. and it was just in front of truly like 30 people who all like hysterically screamed and laughed at me uh, number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve my patience <laughs> you know <laughs>
<laughs> but if we're patient, how will we get all the things done? I, okay. you know, I, I vacillate between needing to be more patient and needing everyone else to hurry the f*** up. Great. I take it back. <laughs> Varicose veins. There you go. There you go. Uh, number eight. Any musician or band, alive or dead, can play your next party. Who is it? You know, I've really been feeling recently like I'd like to play for Cheryl Crow to play Tuesday Night Music Club in its entire oh. entirety for me. Wouldn't she that be was, fun? She was at our ESPNW summit like four years ago. Uh, so it was just a couple hundred of us and she crushed. So fun. So and cool. Interesting to hear uh, speak as well. Mm. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? <sighs> I guess um, the uh, rough night not doing better at the box office. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. But um, as always, I think very successful people tend yeah. to spin those into lessons. So I imagine there's a lot True. figured out as a result of that, too. 100%. Uh, finally, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, passionate. I'd like to be called smart. I think that's cool. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> and um, fair. Passionate, smart, and fair. Those are wonderful. Hey, thanks so much for doing this. I know you're swamped you. with baby and season two promotions and everything else. So it was very cool to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was so fun. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is the place for me to rant, rave, everything in between. Tell you what to watch, what to read, what to listen to. Give you an opinion on something. Really, whatever's on my mind. And after talking to Lucia, it's go watch Hacks if you haven't. Seasons one and two are out. Go watch Broad City. Go watch that Blake Griffin episode. Uh, it's unbelievable. Go watch the other two. So funny. I hadn't realized there was a new season out. I'm on it. Uh, also, let's all watch Rough Night. The cast is incredible. We now know that the writer-director is excellent and cool as hell. Uh, so let's let's give it a shot. Let's go check out that film she's very proud of and not enough of us saw. It's available for a really small fee on Amazon Prime and YouTube. So... Maybe we all just uh, enjoy a little herkle-durkling tomorrow morning and watch it in bed. Let's do it. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 